returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The word of the Lord. Now, Lord and our God, again, we thank you so much for the gift and the blessing of your word, where the creator God has spoken to his people through his word. We thank you for this particular word that in beautiful details demonstrates your sovereignty over salvation, your patience, your kindness, and your grace to those who call upon your name by faith. Apply this word, Holy Spirit, to us now. In Christ's name, and amen. Well, today we finally ascend out of the, the smoke and the smolder of Sodom back into the larger narrative of Abraham and Sarah, which we began back in Genesis chapter 12. And the text today begins by showing that they also quite literally are moving on from Sodom as well as, as they take their leave of their tent camp in Hebron. And now they head southwestward to a place called Gerar. And Gerar is inhabited by Philistines. We will learn this in chapter 26, which tells us something about the land and the people. Namely, that these were not a Yahweh-fearing people, and their king was not a Yahweh-fearing man. And this will become important to us as we progress and understand what's being communicated in the text now, we aren't told explicitly why they left their land, but it's not hard to imagine that the surrounding area of Sodom was not an especially pleasant one to be in after the destruction that came upon Sodom in the valley, the sulfur smoke and ash filling the air. Perhaps this is why they left, or perhaps they just wanted to move away because of the desolation that was their horizon now and the unpleasantness of that picture of judgment. So it could be either, could, could be both. But regardless, they head on out to find another place to set up camp and they set out to wait for Sarah's conception and pregnancy that God has promised will happen within the next three months. I say that he promised Sarah will be pregnant in the next three months because he's promised that she will have a child within a year. So in order to have nine months gestation, Conception will happen within three months. But as they land in this place of Gerar, it becomes evident pretty quickly that Abraham did not pick the most hospitable place to land. Not that there would be many other options, but certainly this as well provided some, some great danger to them. We see this in verse 2, which says, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And... Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took, or that word literally, seized Sarah. So, quick side notes. Abimelech here is probably not his proper name, more so, so 
Pharaoh is king of Egypt. Abimelech is king of the Philistines. It's, it's a title, and we'll, that's important because we'll see several Abimelechs in the greater story of Genesis, probably not the same guy, but more of a title. So they arrive. Abraham presents Sarah as his sister, and the king says, I like what I see. And he has her taken into his custody to be part of his harem. And if this sounds familiar, that's because this is the second time this has happened. It happened also back in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you'll recall back to that sermon, if you were here for it, I made the point, and this was a significant part of my sermon, I made the point that most commentators default by saying that in both of these episodes, these are shocking, uncharacteristic examples of Abraham's unfaithfulness and cowardice. This is a a shocking and horrifying abdication by the great patriarch of the faith. In fact, it is often suggested that one of the primary takeaways, the purpose for the text, is to show that God still uses men who have great shortcomings. That's often one of the main, this is why this exists here. Now, that is certainly true. Even great men have moments of great sins. But if if you'll recall, I reject that interpretation of these texts. I, I don't believe the Lord put these stories here to highlight Abraham's sinfulness. Rather, if you'll recall... I take these as instances of Abraham shrewdly outmaneuvering a tyrant and actually protecting his wife and the promised seed. How in the world could I get that from this text? You'll have to go and listen to my sermon from Genesis 12 because that's the whole first half of it. But a few points, though I won't give a full defense for that, a few quick bullet points for those who weren't here because, again, this is important for What I'm going to argue is the point of the text. By way of reminder, one, notice Abraham is never condemned or rebuked or sanctioned by God in either of these instances, yet in both of them, the king is. Pharaoh is rebuked. Abimelech is rebuked. Furthermore, it's not hard to imagine that a tyrant who is willing to seize a woman he desired would have had little problem killing her husband to get her, but he wouldn't have been so inclined to kill her brother. Rather, he would have sought to get favor from her brother to get his blessing upon that. One thing I missed, too, on the previous point, not only is Abraham not condemned, both times he's enriched and blessed as a result of these episodes. Also, Something that we learn in verse 13 of the text today is that this was a calculated plan that Abraham and Sarah made from the very beginning, 25 years ago, when they set out on this journey. Abraham says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So this is when they made the plan. They probably did it far more than two times. And Abraham's leaving Ur is not the moment where the scriptures suggest he was faithless. Rather, it is a moment of triumph in the life of Abraham as the picture of his great faith. So it's hard to imagine. He has this moment of great faith that the Bible suggests is a moment of the greatest faith of a patriarch. 
It's hard to suggest in that same moment he would come up with a plan that God hates and despises and says is terrible and awful all the time, always. Sermon on chapter 12, if you want more. All this matters, not merely so that we don't unwittingly potentially slander the patriarch, which is a worthy thing to try to avoid, but also because it tends to be a great distraction, I would argue, from how this episode actually connects to the larger story God has been telling all throughout the book of Genesis. This would take us back to just after the fall in Genesis 3, where the Lord pronounces curses on the earth because of human rebellion. But recall that the curse didn't just apply to the man and the woman and the land, but also to the satanic serpent as well. And there the Lord told the serpent that the seed of the woman would ultimately bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And so remembering this promise from Genesis 3.15 is essential, is essential for understanding the entirety of the story of Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Because a narrative that is always at play is the serpent's drive to destroy the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman so that Messiah doesn't come. And the reason we need to self-consciously remember this subtext all the time is because outside of the book of Job, Satan only appears four times in all of the Old Testament by name or by implication. But just because he isn't mentioned by name in a text doesn't mean he's not there. He is always there. It's kind of like when you're reading The Lord of the Rings, every time you come upon a, an orc, the name Sauron isn't invoked. But every time you see an orc, he is doing Sauron's bidding. So it is in the scriptures. So we come to the text today, and we remember Genesis 18. The Lord has just said within a year, the promised seed is coming through Sarah by Abraham. And then we come to our text today, and we find that the very first thing that happens when Abraham goes on the move is that Sarah is seized by a foreign king with the intention to sleep with her, duh, but which we can deduce from verse 6, which reeks of the serpent, the serpent who wants Sarah's womb to be filled with the child of a Philistine, not with the child of promise. So long tangent, hopefully you see why that's important for this text here. So Sarah, at the end of verse 2, is in the custody of Abimelech, not Abraham. But we're going to see that, of course, of course, no scheme of the enemy can ever stand against the sovereign purposes of God Almighty. And spoiler alert, that's kind of the big point for the day. So if you take nothing else with you, the scheme of the enemy for you, for us as the church, for the church universal, will never stand against the sovereign purposes of God Almighty to bless his people and to bring glory to his Son. And so there are really three main scenes now that, that flow downward from this episode. So the drama is set. She is seized. The three scenes are the Lord's confrontation with Abimelech, 
then Abimelech's confrontation with Abraham, and then Abimelech's restitution to Abraham and Sarah. So we'll consider those now. The first scene is found in verses 3 through 7, and, and this is where the Lord directly confronts Abimelech via a dream. So sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll hear a pitter-patter coming down the hall. Typically, it's a rug rat coming into the room, wanting to come into our bed. And typically, the excuse is I had a bad dream, which often I question the veracity of this claim. Well, we certainly couldn't fault Abimelech for claiming the next day that he had a scary dream. Because the Lord comes to him in a dream, and he leads out by saying, Behold, you are a dead man. Imagine that being your alarm clock. The Almighty telling you that you are about to die, and then he tells him why. He might be accustomed to taking any woman he pleases for himself, but this time he picked the wrong woman because he picked the wife of God's prophet, to use the language within the text. Now, don't be tricked. You're going to be tricked at this point to feel sorry for Abimelech. And you're going to be tricked to feel sorry because he pleads his innocence and the Lord agrees. I did this from the innocence of my heart. And the Lord says, I know that you did this from the innocence of your heart. But understand that does not make Abimelech the victim in the story. Yes, he's innocent of knowing that she was a wife, but he's not an innocent man. This is a tyrant pagan king who collects women like trophies, partly to satisfy his sexual appetites, and would have done so with her had it not been for divine intervention. And the Lord says this as much in verse 6, which is a very important verse. He says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. I know you didn't know that she was a wife. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So, so any good that you want to attribute to Abimelech is only because of the sovereign restraining mercy of God upon him to not let him sin against the Lord. Abimelech is not the victim in this episode. Quick side note. Here we find not just a theological truth, namely that God is sovereign over human sin, but we also find a very practical encouragement as Christians as we do war against the sins that we struggle with, as we do war against the sin of anger, as we war against the sin of lust and the sin of pornography or gossip or the sin of being harsh with your wife or the sin of being disrespectful to your husband, whatever your sin is, know that you are not helpless against slaying that sin in the name of Christ. Consider this. If the Lord is willing to keep a pagan king from sin, how much more is he willing to help and to protect his beloved covenant people against the sin that they struggle with? God can and does and will help you overcome any sin that you face. You are never enslaved to any sin, and any thought that you are is unbelief and a satanic lie. 
1 Corinthians 10.13, to Christians, no temptation has overtaken you that has not come to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Christian, God is always able and always willing to help us, help us in our struggle against sin. The question is not, is that true? The Bible says it. The question is, do you believe it? The question is, do you call upon the name of the Lord in your moment of need? Okay, so the Lord lets Abimelech know who's really the king over Gerar. And then he tells him how he might get out from under this death sentence, namely to return the wife and let, and let Abraham pray for him. And then from there, next scene, verses 8 through 13, we see that Abimelech makes haste to comply with the word of the Lord. The fear of God has come upon Abimelech. So early the next morning, he then puts the fear of God upon his own people by telling them what, what happened during the night, probably so that they would steer clear of Abraham and of his entourage. And then Abimelech calls in and he confronts Abraham personally for, for telling him that Sarah was not his wife. But again, Abraham tells him why he didn't tell him. Verse 11, he said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, which, as we've already noted, was a good presumption on Abraham's part. So though Abimelech is humble now, a ruler that can populate a harem simply by saying that one is not accustomed to being told no. Abraham knew that. And here is where Abraham goes on to explain, again, that this has been the standing plan for the last 25 years. Every time they encounter a pagan king, th this is what they will do. And, and this reminds us, again, another important point, that Abraham was a man of faith and Abraham was a man of action. Faith is not opposed to action. Faith is not opposed to forethought. Faith is not opposed to planning. Faith is not even opposed to shrewdness and righteous cunning. See, in, in Abraham's case, the moment he was called out by God to carry the seed of salvation into the world, he was the marked man by the serpent. And so his faith, Setting out in faith was trusting God to do what only God can do while he did what he was able to do with wisdom in the process. Our Lord teaches this in Matthew 10, 16. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And in this section, we see how good of an example Abraham is of our Lord's words. And so from here, then, we move on to, to the third and final scene in this episode. And this is where Abimelech, he not only returns Sarah, 
but he makes an exceedingly generous restitution to Abraham and Sarah. He gives them animals and he gives them servants along with other things, just like what happened back in chapter 12 with Pharaoh. Yet, and this is important to see, though there are some similarities between this episode and the first one with Pharaoh ends, there are also some very significant differences that make this whole story land on a different note. Three in particular. First, Abimelech offers to Abraham to dwell in his land. While Pharaoh, back in Genesis 12, he did not do this. He gave Abraham the bounty and then he escorted him to the border and said, get out, get away from us. But not Abimelech. Abimelech says, my land is not before you. Dwell, dwell with us. Second, Abimelech shows a special concern for the dignity of the bride. He, he cares deeply that Sarah is known by all to be vindicated and innocent. Perhaps this is primarily driven by the fear of the Lord upon him now, just cover every track and, and every basis, perhaps. But it does seem to reveal a remarkably soft and perhaps warm heart towards Abraham and his people and Sarah. And thirdly, we see that Abraham does, in fact, pray for Abimelech. This is a beautiful moment. Abraham prays over Abimelech, and his prayer has a profound effect, which we see starting in verse 17. It says, Then God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And putting these pieces together, filling it in a little bit, we might almost surmise that Abimelech has undergone a conversion of sorts before our very eyes. Now, of course, we, we can't see the man's heart, but we certainly see a sort of death and resurrection in Abimelech and in his land, one that has come by the mercy of God alone through the intercession of God's prophets. And where do we see this? Well, again, remember the very first words that the Lord spoke to Abimelech. He said, behold, you are a dead man. And we know now that the people were cursed as well. But the ending is now, behold, you are a healed man, and your people are now blessed with fruitfulness. Also, the land has undergone a conversion from no fear of the Lord to a land where all the people do now, it would appear, fear the Lord, fear the God of Abraham. And then even more, this land will now be the place, as we'll see in the weeks to come, that the promised seed will actually be born in. It is grown out of this soil. So here's what we see, zooming out again to the larger story in Genesis. Not only has Satan's attempt to destroy the seed of the woman failed miserably, but even more, 
God has used the very instrument that was intended to frustrate his plan and purposes for his people, namely Abimelech, as the very means by which God blesses his people and furthers his good plan for salvation for them. So make no mistake, Christian. What Martin Luther declared 500 years ago is as true now as it was for him, as it was for Abraham. Namely, when he said, even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil is God's devil. Yes, the devil still tries to torment the bride. The devil still tries to keep the seed of salvation from spreading out more and more. But his plan is a failing plan, and all of his evil tactics against the saints through discouragement and through disunity and through disbelief, will ultimately backfire. They will ultimately not just be thwarted, but they will be used by God to accomplish His good purposes in the world. So be of good courage, Christian. Yes, we are not unaware of His tactics. We are not ignorant. Of course we have a target on our back as the bride of Christ. Of course, Pilgrim Hill has a special target as a Bible-believing, reformationally intentional church. Of course. Of course he wants us, like Sarah, to be destroyed and to be rendered fruitless. But we also know that he has no authority over us. And we know James 4.7, which says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Not he might flee from you. Not cross your fingers, perhaps. The devil will flee from a people who submit themselves to God, submit themselves to the word of God. And our Savior will protect us. And we will be prayed for one that is even better than Abraham. Namely, the bridegroom himself. The Lord Jesus Christ who defeated Satan and who now lives to always make intercession for you and for me. And so let us be of good courage and let us recall with great faith and gratitude the words that we already sung. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Thus ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. And the Lord of hosts is his name, and he from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And our Lord and our God. Proud, 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 proud.